This is Allison Markoski and Marcus Slayton with your local news, coming to you live via the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. A Dane County judge ruled today that Wisconsin taxpayers will be footing the bill for the $98,000 in fines to cover for Assembly Speaker Robin Voss. The liberal watchdog group American Oversight has opened four lawsuits against both Voss and elections investigator Michael Gableman over records related to the investigation into the 2020 presidential election. After the judge said that the investigation found, quote, absolutely no evidence of election fraud, end quote, the judge ruled in favor of American Oversight. That's according to the Associated Press. The judge did not award any punitive damages against Voss, pointing to the fact that Wisconsin taxpayers have already spent over $1 million on the investigation. Today's ruling puts an end to one of the four lawsuits brought against Voss and elections investigator Michael Gableman, although Voss's attorney recommended that Voss appeal the ruling. The Wisconsin Elections Commission is reminding voters that there is no vulnerability with the state's online voter registration and information website, MyVoteWisconsin. The statement comes after a right-wing anti-voting fraud activist requested about a dozen absentee ballots using the website, including ballots for Assembly Speaker Robin Voss and Racine Mayor Corey Mason. The activist then told on himself to Voss, Mason, and law enforcement. That's a crime under Wisconsin law. The stunt is part of a protest from a right-wing group called Hot Government, which alleges that people are unlawfully using the website to acquire absentee ballots, reports the Washington Post. So the Wisconsin Elections Commission is reminding the public that it is illegal to intentionally use false information to receive a ballot, including on My Vote Wisconsin. The commission will hold a special virtual meeting this evening to discuss the allegations. That meeting starts at 8 o'clock. Former Vice President Mike Pence has thrown his hat into the Wisconsin race for governor, officially endorsing Rebecca Cleefish. The former lieutenant governor made the announcement on her Twitter account yesterday, where she called the endorsement an honor. The announcement comes just one day after former President Donald Trump announced he was coming to Wisconsin to campaign for his own candidate in the race, Tim Michaels. According to the most recent Marquette Law School poll, Cleefish and Michaels are roughly tied in the race to become Wisconsin's Republican candidate. The fall partisan primary takes place on August 9th. A Racine-based activist who was arrested during a pro-choice demonstration last month has had all charges against them dismissed, reports the Washington State Journal, or Wisconsin State Journal. Kiwan Goldsmith was arrested on June 26 for resisting or obstructing an officer and for disorderly conduct. Racine police claim that Goldsmith was ordered to move out of the street during the demonstration. They say that Goldsmith refused and ignored the sergeant's commands. But a video recording of the incident does not support the police's story. The video shows Goldsmith about to step back onto the sidewalk when he was approached by police and arrested. Goldsmith announced that the case was dropped on his Facebook page yesterday. Scientific language can often be confusing, especially when you try to explain it in another language. That's why one program at UW-Madison is working to translate scientific words into Navajo. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports that the Enable program was started by Sterling Martin, who grew up in the Navajo tradition and a recent biophysics graduate from the university. 
Martin says that he first thought of the online dictionary project when he found he could not communicate his research with family members at home. The project was, has already translated around 250 words into Navajo language. The Madison School Board voted to approve a 3% base wage increase for all staff last night, below what Madison's Teachers Union has advocated for. Madison Teachers Incorporated, or MTI, have asked for a 4.7% increase to match the cost of living adjustment here in Wisconsin, the maximum the district is allowed to ask for. The meeting where the vote occurred was noticed just 24 hours in advance, and the meeting officially closed the district's negotiations on the wage increase, the district's general legal counsel told the Cap Times. The 3% increase passed by a 5-to-1 vote, with board member Nikki Vandermeulen saying that teachers deserve nothing less than 4.7%. And now, on to today's top stories. This morning, a group of advocates gathered outside the Dane County Courthouse to demand an investigation into the Republican scheme to submit a false slate of electors in the 2020 presidential election. WRT reporter Andy Barrow has more. We need action because the lawyers, the public officials, the phony electors, and all those who enabled them must be held to account or they will try it again. Yeah. That's Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway speaking outside the Dane County Courthouse this morning as part of a press conference from voting rights coalitions and legal experts. They were there to call on Dane County District Attorney Ishmael Ozane to open an investigation into the actions of Republican officials who attempted to convene a slate of false electors in an attempt to subvert the 2020 presidential election. Today's press conference follows numerous attempts to get DA Ozane to investigate the fake elector scheme. Liberal-leaning legal group Law Forward has been calling on Ozane to investigate the scheme, which they say constitutes felony fraud. Matt Rothschild is executive director of the Wisconsin Democracy Campaign. Today, he asked why Ozane has not responded to Law Forward. District Attorney Ishmael Ozan has a legal, immoral, and historical obligation to indict these false electors. What's taking him so long? You know, it was five and a half months ago that the brilliant lawyers over at Law Forward sent uh, District Attorney Ishmael Ozan a letter urging him to investigate the false electors. It's part of a years-long push for legal repercussions. In February 2021, Law Forward filed a civil complaint with the Wisconsin Elections Commission. The complaint names 10 individuals who allegedly met at the state capitol to prepare fraudulent documents to cast Wisconsin's electoral votes for Donald Trump. In May, Law Forward filed another civil lawsuit against the false electors on behalf of Wisconsin electors and voters. One of the false electors, Bob Spindell, is currently serving on the bipartisan Wisconsin Elections Commission. The call to investigate comes after the January 6th committee unearthed text from Senator Ron Johnson. Those texts reveal that Senator Johnson coordinated with Jim Troupas, a Trump campaign attorney and former Dane County judge, in an attempt to pass the slate of false electors to Vice President Mike Pence prior to the certification of the election. This morning, Mayor Rhodes-Conway also called for accountability for Senator Johnson. We cannot allow elected leaders like Senator Ron Johnson to prepare to hand over those forged documents to the Vice 
on the floor of the U.S. Senate while it is engaged in the solemn constitutional duty to oversee the peaceful transfer of power. Greg Lewis is executive director of Souls to the Polls, Wisconsin. He urged for action, saying failing to investigate fraud could have dire consequences for democracy. We're deeply concerned that this type of behavior will be duplicated over and over again. If we let this pass us by, they're going to continue to do things like this, but even worse. And we'll have nobody to blame but ourselves. We must strongly stand against these suppressive obstacles that continue to eat away our rights. DA Ozane did not return a request for comment by airtime. Reporting for WORT, this is Andy Barrow. So, you did your civic duty and you didn't procrastinate. You voted early. Then the candidate who earned your vote dropped out of the race. Now what? Election officials say there's a way to change your vote. For a how-to, we turn to WORT reporter Emily Kasinger. Early voting for the August 9th primary election began on Tuesday. As of this morning, nearly 12,000 absentee ballots in Madison, about 7% of the city's registered voters, have been returned. And statewide, nearly 140,000 votes had been returned as of yesterday, reports the Cap Times. But some of those votes are for candidates who have since dropped out of the race. Republican candidate for governor Kevin Nicholson suspended his campaign earlier this month. And this week, two candidates in the Democratic primary for U.S. Senate canceled their campaigns to throw support behind Mandela Barnes. So what to do if you've already submitted your ballot for a candidate who's no longer running? Election officials say you can change your vote. Rachel Rodriguez is an election specialist at the Dane County's clerk's office. She says that you can cancel and recast your vote through a process called spoiling. Spoiling your ballot basically means that you know if you have made a mistake on your ballot or in this case, maybe you have voted for somebody who's already dropped out and you want to vote for somebody else, spoiling your ballot is the process that would allow you and allow clerks to disregard a ballot that you may have already returned and then receive a new ballot. And you can only do so after your original ballot arrives at your clerk's office. If you were, say, for example, if you voted by mail and you want to have a new ballot mailed to you, then I would suggest that you contact your clerk and have that clerk spoil and cancel that previous ballot that you had sent in, and then they can send you a new one. If you had decided that maybe you mailed a ballot in originally, but now you want to vote in person absentee, you could request that that ballot be spoiled when you go to vote early. If you have returned a ballot already, you could call your clerk and say, hey, I'd like to spoil my ballot. And then you could still go in person and vote on election day if you wanted to do that as well. There are multiple deadlines for spoiling a ballot. The deadline depends on whether you voted early by mail or in person. Voters who are indefinitely confined because of age, illness, or disability and voted early by mail have an extra day. So if you are not an indefinitely confined absentee voter, if you requested a ballot via mail and you're not indefinitely confined, then the deadline is 5 p.m. the Thursday before the election. If you are indefinitely confined, it's 5 p.m. the Friday before the election. If you cast a ballot in-person absentee and you still want to spoil that ballot, then the deadline becomes the end of whenever your municipal clerk is doing in-person absentee voting. Because of this, Rodriguez suggests contacting your clerk sooner rather than later. 
Voters can spoil their ballot twice at most. A spoiled ballot is marked and set aside by clerks to make sure that it isn't counted on election day. The clerk's office is recommending all requests to spoil a ballot be made in writing for sake of keeping a record in case of, for example, an audit. You can check the status of your ballot on myvote.wi.gov by selecting the Track My Ballot link. Information about how to contact your clerk is on that page as well. Links will be included on the online version of this story. Reporting for WORT News, this is Emily Kaysinger. COVID-19 protections for thousands of migrant farm workers expire today as the peak of agricultural season begins. WORT reporter Kristen Billings has the story. On March 1, 2022, the Department of Workplace Development issued an emergency rule to prevent the spread of COVID-19 and ensure the health of migrant farm workers. It was an extension of previous emergency orders issued in 2020 and 2021, which were declared as the virus evolved and continued to put workers at risk. Today, that rule is expiring, and it's not being renewed. Gabrielle Monsano is a staff attorney with the Farm Worker Project, a program run by Legal Action of Wisconsin that conducts outreach and provides free legal services to farm workers throughout the state. He worries that the expiration of the emergency rule will make his clients more vulnerable to the virus. Without some of the provisions found in the now expired emergency rule, farm workers will have less protection from exposure to COVID-19, its many variants, as well as from exposure to any novel disease that may appear in the future. The emergency rule expires as the peak of the agricultural season begins. Likely, over 6,500 migrant seasonal farm workers are currently working and living in Wisconsin until November or early December. And historically, uh, these farm workers have had less access to quality health care and higher incidence of certain chronic diseases, which leads to more severe outcomes when exposed to COVID-19. The rule required employers to provide quarantine housing for COVID-positive workers, as well as those who were symptomatic but had yet to access a test. It also required social distancing, regular cleaning and disinfection of common living and sleeping areas, provision of face masks, proper ventilation and hand sanitizer, amongst other regulations. Wisconsin's agricultural industry relies on approximately 5,000 seasonal and migrant farm workers every year. Many of them live and work in tight quarters. They also often have unreliable access to health care and medical treatment, exacerbated by language barriers. These factors make them especially vulnerable to COVID infection and illness, which is a concern with new findings that the BA5 variant has a higher reinfection rate than previous strains of the virus. While concern about the pandemic has waned, Christine Ortiz Newman, the executive director of Voces de la Frontera, an immigrant rights advocacy group, emphasizes that agricultural workers face disproportionate risks compared to the general population. It affects uh, you know, those workers and their families disproportionately, and those are folks who are serving our food, are making it impossible for us to eat. For those of us who are able to do a lot of work at home, we have a debt of gratitude to those um, essential workers. While state-mandated protective measures are no longer effective starting tomorrow, the Department of Workforce Development is working to permanently revise migrant labor rules. Those could potentially include the creation of additional requirements to ensure the health and safety of migrant workers at work sites and an employer-provided transportation and housing. 
Manzano says that these permanent revisions are in their early stages, without enforceable protections to fill the place of the expired emergency rule. Here at Legal Action are concerned that there is likely going to be a gap in protection and coverage regarding COVID-19 and all the risks associated. In the interim, labor contractors and farm workers are being encouraged to review public health recommendations issued by the Department of Health Services. Ortiz Newman also stresses that many migrant farm workers aren't aware of their rights, making them vulnerable to the whims of their employers. She says a permanent rule is essential to protecting workers in the long term. And the reason that we have seen the need for for strong protections um, is that companies are always going to think about the uh, short-term profits. They're always going to think about the bottom line, and that's going to come at the expense of the worker and their families. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Kristen Billings. p.m. You're listening to the live local news on WORT. The August 9th primary election is now less than two weeks away, so the 6 p.m. local news continues its coverage of the candidates running for governor in the Republican primary. Last week, WORT producer Nate Weggehout spoke with Adam Fisher, a former police officer and Republican candidate for governor, about law enforcement, the 2020 presidential election, and why he is running for governor. I'm joined now by Adam Fisher, a Republican candidate for Wisconsin governor. Adam, thank you so much for coming on and joining me today. Thank you for having me. So, Adam, I just sort of want to start things off a little bit about you. Who are you? Tell me a little bit about your background. So, um, I was a former police officer for six years for the state of Wisconsin. I've been a business owner for about 23 years. I'm a landlord. Um, And in all in Wisconsin, I've grown up here my whole life. Um, After being injured, I couldn't be a police officer anymore. So, um, I do my real estate business. I worked as a VP of sales uh, in the uniform industry for a $20 billion company, and I'm also a hobby farmer. I own 400 acres where I raise chickens, turkeys, ducks, honeybees, and I till 40 acres. And so sort of going off of that, why then are you running for governor? So two reasons. Uh, The first reason being is I got COVID last year really bad for 20 days. I ended up with two hospital trips. and while I was in the hospital, I was getting pretty ticked off that the people that weaponized COVID weren't being held accountable uh, for weaponizing COVID. And I started praying about it. And God told me to, to do something about it and run for governor. And then the second reason, if you've ever seen one of my business cards or my website, my tagline is one pissed off American. Now, people always ask me, why am I pissed off? What I'm pissed off about is that uh, politicians tell us what we want to hear, then they get elected to office, and they go there and they waste their time and our resources and mismanage our money. So as being a working class citizen, um, I'm going to office with the action plan to get things accomplished. 
And now you mentioned their uh, weaponized COVID. Can you uh, sort of explain to me who who was it that was weaponizing COVID and how what, what were they doing? So this is all opinion based, of course, um, because the facts haven't come out. But I would really like an investigation to be done um, into Wuhan, China, and uh, everybody else that was involved. Um, I'm not going to name drop because, again, you know, people are innocent until proven guilty in court. And so looking at Wisconsin today, what are some of the top issues that you see facing the state? Uh, what are some of the things that you want to work on? Well, number one is is law and order. If you don't have law and order, you don't have anything. And I'm the only candidate that is a former police officer. So we don't need new laws. We need to enforce them. And as a former police officer, I know how to enforce the laws. Number two, we need to get our economy back. And again, I built a business from $0 up to $10 million. I, I know what it takes to put in the work and uh, look at where money's being mismanaged and manage it properly. I have a plan. And uh, that, that plan's going to blow people out of the water because a lot of it's common sense. And we need to stop spending money on things that we shouldn't be spending money on and then put that money in other buckets and get resources back for you know police, firemen, healthcare workers, teachers, EMS and correctional officers and military and vets. Um, also, we need to get behind our teachers with our schools. Our, our children are our future. And there's a lot of teachers right now that really want to be doing a good job. And they're frustrated with what's being shoved down their throats with, you know, furries or um, CRT or dealing with, you know, this whole ridiculousness about genders i mean there's two genders male and female period um so like i said there's a lot of common sense stuff that just shouldn't even be an issue right now but is under the administration of evers and now you talked about how you were a former police officer can you tell me a little bit about your time as a police officer tell me a little bit about that well i i was raised that you should be proud of your state and your country and your family and um, I grew up in a cop and fireman neighborhood in the city of Milwaukee. And uh, some of my family are police and military. And uh, so being brought up in that environment made me want to serve the people. And, uh, you know, God calls us to be shepherds as a Christian. And I, my calling was to go and serve the people. So I became a police officer and I laid my life on the line for people each and every day. I've been stabbed twice, shot once, paralyzed, told that I'd never work or walk again. I went through a back surgery and four years of rehab, learning how to work and walk again, because I told the doctors, my God raises dead people. And I mean, it wasn't overnight, it was four years of rehab. But here I am working and walking again, and I encourage anybody who's on hard times to just keep moving forward. Don't concentrate on where you're at today, concentrate on where you want to be tomorrow. And so I want to, sticking with police for a second here, on earlier this year in January, you spoke to a crowd over in River Falls, uh, and you used the phrase, the handcuffs are coming off of the police. Uh, can you sort of just break that down a little bit for me? What is that? What do you mean by that? So uh, I feel that with our current administration, police are afraid to do their jobs because everybody's too far too sensitive nowadays or they don't want to take any uh, responsibility, personal responsibility for their own actions. They want to blame other people. 
So when I get in the administration, the police are going to be allowed to do their jobs. So in essence, taking the, the, the handcuffs off the police. So they're going to be able to enforce laws and not have to worry about if they hurt somebody's feelings or, you know, if they have to use force, justifiable force. Um, they're going to be backed by the administration just like, you know, if a criminal commits a crime, they're not guilty until proven in court. It's the same way with the police. If a cop's doing his job, we are not going to bow to the, to the rioters because they're burning down cities to, you know, stick a cop in jail for something that he may or may not have done until we go through a court proceedings. Um, I think it's ridiculous that the cops need to be looking over their shoulders and we're putting up statues of uh, criminals um, and glorifying criminals instead of the heroes that are laying it on the line each and every day. So, again, we're going to get back to a community where you feel safe sending your kids to a park. Adam, we're running up a little bit against the clock here. So I just want to one last issue here is elections. So recently the uh, state Supreme Court ruled that the absentee ballot drop boxes were illegal. And some Republicans are calling for the 2020 presidential election to be uh, decertified. Now, multiple court cases and recounts have affirmed that Joe Biden did win the state of Wisconsin in the 2020 presidential election. And top Republicans have even said that it is uh, illegal and not actually possible to decertify that election. So I sort of want to ask you, just going from there, who who do you say won the 2020 presidential election here in Wisconsin? Well, I'm going to lean back on we have a court system and things need to go through a due process. And as I understand it in Wisconsin, um, we haven't gone through that process in the court system to look at all the evidence to find out whether there was fraud or no fraud. Um, so that would be that'd be my answer. We have we have, we have a court system for that. And if if somebody, so I'm I'm going to throw it out there. As governor, I like to see uh, a criminal law against anybody who's caught committing voter fraud at a minimum of five to 10 year sentence with no parole so that it discourages anybody on either side of the fence from cheating. Looking at that 2020 presidential election, would you try to decertify that election? Again, I I would lean on seeing the evidence here in Wisconsin heard before a court and or a jury uh, if necessary. And if either side aren't willing to put it in front of a court and a justice system, I think they should be held liable and at fault for not using our justice system. I've been talking with Adam Fisher, Republican candidate for governor here in Wisconsin. The primary election takes place on August 9th. Adam, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me. Thank you, too. Have a nice day. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with my co-host, Allison Markowski. Thanks for joining us. Walking by the state capitol building, you might catch a glimpse of Lily Lux. Since the Dobbs ruling, she's been on the capitol square, topless, with a sign reading, My Body, My Choice. 
While Lux has been a part of the nipple equality movement for years, she's ramped up her efforts since the Supreme Court overturned abortion protections. Earlier today, she spoke with 8 o'clock Buzz host, Todi Castaneda, about her unique brand of protest. As I understand, this is something that you've been doing for a long time. You've been hosting nipple equality events for about 10 years or so to, to highlight the gender discrepancies in uh, who is allowed to go shirtless in public. Public Is that what nipple equality is all about? Well, the nipple equality specific movement um, started a little bit more with social media. Uh, but 10 years ago, I found out that it was legal or allowed basically in Madison for uh, all people um, to be topless. And once I learned that, I you know wanted to share that information because it is not a commonly known thing. And, uh, you know, I've been a burlesque performer for a while. And so I just started throwing events to offer people the opportunity to do it in a group. It is much easier to do it in with others than to walk around the square or, um, uh, festivals. I've been to lots of festivals by myself. It takes a little bit to do it on your own, but it's, it's a lovely experience. And, uh, I think, you know, it's really changed not only my life, but for the people who have participated, it completely changes how you look at your body and how you feel about yourself. Now you mentioned the notion of, or the concept of bodily autonomy. What, what exactly mm-hmm. do you mean by that? Well, just the idea that when you walk out the door, like you have ownership of your body and your choices. Uh, I had a really great conversation on the square with a gentleman one day who had had noticed me on my, he often walked at lunch too. And the conversation I asked him, like, have you ever thought on a hot day you're going for a run, whether or not you should, could, would take your shirt off if you wanted to. And he's like, no, it's never even crossed my mind. And we have half the population that from the time they are very young is taught shame, is taught that your body is banned, that your body is sexualized. And, uh, you know, most men haven't had that experience at all. And so I feel like this movement for me is about owning that, like, hey, anything you can do with your body, I can do with my body you know, goose gander. And I think, you know, while what I'm doing right now is, you know, a statement about toplessness, it really goes to my body, my choice. Okay, but let's talk about the politics of of what you're doing, especially what you're doing now. After the decision, I mean, you were ready to kind of give up on doing this for a while, but then the uh, Roe v. Wade decision comes out a month ago or so, and you're like, okay, this is it. I'm going to go do it. What is the connection between being topless and uh, protesting against Roe v. Wade? Uh, Again, my body, my choice. Right. Uh, I think, and that's the fundamental issue. Also, I think it sort of goes to the idea of that our bodies are treated differently, and that's part of the laws and everything that's happening now. Uh, I think the idea that by covering ourselves, we are constantly and always going to be othered and treated differently. And, you know, that that's not going to work out with anyone that's not going to create change. So for it's also a way to protest and bring, you know, uh, the imagery of uh, a woman, a female, you know, to 
the attention right now. I think one of the things is, you know, I've been out there for today will be day 31. I'm often the only person protesting. And part of the reason I keep showing up every day is I have two daughters and I will no longer have apathy um, that my country and the laws that are happening will get better unless I actually get out there and do something about it. Um, so this is what I decided to, to do about it. Um, it's very cathartic. Uh, I, I'm sort of doing it timely. And um, so for me, that sort of all encompasses, like, why now? Mm-hmm. And I, I did quit, like you said. I, I've been talking about nipples for a decade. I honestly was really over it. I didn't think I was going to continue my efforts on this. And uh, I just sort of felt like challenge accepted. Okay, I apparently still need to talk about this. And, you know, even though I've been doing it for a decade, I never tried to live like this. I never tried to leave my house on my bike. And it's hot. I don't want to put a sports bra on. I'm just going to go. Mm-hmm. So I've never I've never tried to just exist as I when I have ownership of my body and my choices when I walk out my door. And I'm never going to stop doing that. You're right. And, of course, you don't just... You you are protesting, and you bring a protest sign. You've got my body, my choice uh, uh, that you carry around with you, or you wear it as you're uh, uh, walking around the square. And then when you sit at the Miss Forward uh, uh, statue, so it's there. Now, what about other people joining you? Would you like others to join uh, in your protest? Yes. No, I have others join me quite a bit. Actually, I was gone this weekend for a work trip, and my friend Vanessa uh, kept the streak going. Uh, I get joined by people. I would say every other day there is a a person who has been doing the farmer's market. Mm -hmm. They get there at 6 a.m. and stay the whole time. I haven't seen it, but I have heard there are people in the Willie Street area who have been uh, doing it. Um, Yeah, I, I, I know it's really hard because of how we're treated in our bodies. You know, I can get harassed wearing a parka. So for so many female presenting bodies, the idea of exposing themselves this way is scary. They are scared to death. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I I can't help them overcome that fear. I'm just going to keep sharing that we live in a wonderful community, and I do this every day. And honestly, I really only have one negative experience a week, and it's very minor. So Mm -hmm. I'm just going to keep sharing that it's going really well. Uh, I don't feel unsafe. I it's. It's been great. Go Madison. We live in a great place. I just I cannot say enough about the community. Besides some, you know, eye rolls and glares, uh, it's been perfect. I can't say enough. Mm-hmm. We're speaking with Lily Lux. Um, you have probably seen her. You've heard about her protest every uh, every day uh, at noon at the Capitol Square. Uh, you'll you'll take a little stroll and then you will set up station at the State Street entrance of the state capitol. Now, can you give us, uh, if people want to donate to your cause, uh, what's the site that they go to where they can uh, uh, do this? Sure. So I, I fundraise both through uh, Facebook and Instagram. Uh, I, I'm using the topless evangelist moniker that the Isthmus gave me, which was great. And, uh, yeah, um, I also, you can just give, I'm, all of the money is going to the Women's Medical Fund, which is the Wisconsin Abortion Fund. And uh, that can donate, too, if you just want to send me a message and let me know. I'll take Venmo. When I'm out at fairs, I, I'll take cash. Anyway, it goes to the fund, and um, we will 
keep helping someone get health care every All week. All right, and they should maybe put a little note that it's for the uh, topless evangelist protest yes. also. That's good. Thank you Thank very you. much for being on the show. Yep, cheers. Every other week, we catch up with the Out of the Box podcast. In this week's edition, contributor D-Star sat down with Carl Fields, a community organizer for Expo, or Ex-Incarcerated People Organizing. Fields shares with us his journey from gang life at a young age to doing 16 years in prison to becoming one of the most well-respected community leaders in the state. What's up, everybody? This is your host, D-Star, here with Carl Fields from Racine. Carl Fields from Racine. How you doing, man? I'm doing all right, my good man. Doing all right. Thanks for having me. No problem. So for the people that don't know you, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Sure. Well, you know, uh, like I said, my name is Carl. You know, I um, go by or at least used to go by Big Sebo. A lot of cats in, um, that on that forced time out right now would recognize that name as well. I identify as an ex-knucklehead turned professional. I run a day shelter in Racine. It's a program where people can come stop in, you know pick up resources, but definitely get something to eat. It's a community space where people are welcome. I also am a community organizer for a group called Expo, which is ex-incarcerated people organizing. And that's where we do this thing that we refer to as part peer support, part civic engagement. Why? Because it takes a whole lot more than being clean, sober, and staying out of trouble to get your life back. In fact, that's just a start. If you did one of those things or all three of those things, your life wouldn't come back to you. It's just a start. So Absolutely. So let's take it back a little bit, your upbringing and how that led you to prison. Sure. Well, uh, I'm one of those uh, young cats, uh, part of the migration uh, from Chicago originally, uh, you know, landed in Wisconsin uh, at my young age of elementary school, second grade. And one of the things that what was hard was that I went from a big metropolis of a city to a small city and it had a great feel to it. But I was encountering and experiencing a lot of things that I couldn't put a uh, put, couldn't put a name on, couldn't put my thumb on. And those things were, you know, racism in, in many forms. And I, I talk all the time, you know, myself, a lot of us, us cats from uh, Racine, Kenosha area. We, we talk a lot about there's a lot of uh, diversity, but not a lot of equity. Who was all in the household with you? So um, I grew up as three of us, my older sister, younger brother, mom, stepdad. We come out of Chicago, been in Racine since the 80s. And I was one of those kids who paid a lot of attention, didn't speak much, you know, introverted by nature, but knew enough to know how to move well. And I took in a lot more than, you know, I put out initially, at least verbally. And that got me into trouble. So your home life, would you categorize it as a good one or was it strained in some way? Uh, well, the, the short of my home life was that I had a lot of support, uh, but I didn't have a lot of explanation. And as a young black child, as a young black man in the making, you know, because to me, kids aren't just kids, you know, they're young adults in training. And if you're not training this young man in training, giving him the tools that he needs and and helping me to carry to both have and carry the emotional armor that it takes to take those hits that are going to come in society, then I got to figure that out on my own. So in your younger years, you had a supportive home life, but you felt disenfranchised by the community, which led you to get into trouble with the law. What are the circumstances surrounding your incarceration? Why did you get incarcerated? Uh, well, not a not a hard question. Uh, definitely a fair question. Uh, as a as a young cat, you know, I was um, street dude. You know, sold drugs, did a, a lot of other things that 
uh, young cats around me uh, did coming out of uh, an impoverished scenario. You know, I wasn't in a, I wasn't in a situation in my life and with my family that I didn't know we were poor. I, I knew and I felt it. You know, I wasn't I wasn't lacking on the love that go along with being connected with people uh, who you care about and who care about you. But I was lacking on the resources that you would hope that come along with being a part of a unit. And so I felt like I had to figure that part out. And so I was in the streets early, got in trouble early. And that led to uh, a lot of different hangups. But the fast forward part of it, my story is complicated in that um, my mother died when um, when I was a young cat, 19 years old, 20 years old at that time. And the message was heavy around, uh, you know, me being in the streets and, and my street involvement having something to do with her being killed, which was totally off and inaccurate. But, you know, I took that to heart. And, and so... Can you expound on that? Uh, oh, sure I can. Well, the message the message went over that one, I was uh, on the run already uh because I was absconding from my PO. I was on paper at the time. And so everything about being a young knucklehead was coming to uh coming to a head for me. In the process of all that, my mother died. She uh so in addition to her uh being homeless, she was struggling with addiction. And so that's one of the reasons why I run a shelter program now and I'm so heavily invested in that because I bring to that work and I bring to that, that kind of effort, the kind of effort I wish she would have had from somebody who would have worked with and treated her with dignity and respect, regardless of her scenario. Cause as a person, you know, your personhood is supposed to be lifted up. And so I do that work for that reason. And when she died, the message was getting through, whether they meant to or not was that uh, from the law enforcement standpoint was that she was killed because of something I did in the street and they couldn't get to me. And so, like, I, I walked with that for months. And when that came to a head, the police were coming to arrest me for being on paper and being, you know, in absconding mode and absconding status. And I shot at them and they shot back. And the police being. Correct. Police being. Yes. Those people. Right. And 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 so what hit me about that was um they weren't hurt. I wasn't hurt, but it, it did turn into this very radical scenario where um, it was an eight hour, about eight hour standoff. And I was arrested, um, you know, as the paperwork would say, arrested without incident. And and so part of my story in this work that I do now in restorative you know, justice principles and practices is that they know how to do their job well and they have the tools to do so. And and I'm one of those people in a rare scenario that managed to have that kind of an incident and keep my life because I felt like the police around me were looking at doing their job, not to hurt me, not to get their lick back, not to be ugly, just doing the job. That resonated on me with such humility later on in my prison term that I was like, oh, my God, I need to speak about that. So how long did you end up going to prison? For? 16 years, 15 years, 10 months. You know, I round up. <laughs> um, it's it's one of those things that uh, I had no idea that I would do that much time. But at the same time, I had committed such a such a societal infraction that I knew prison was in my future and I knew a significant amount of time in prison was in my future. Um, what I what I was hoping for was that I would get an investment of an opportunity to get my life back and do something with it. So how old were you? Uh, I was 20 when I had the incident with the police and I went to prison at 21 and released when I was 36. Kind of take me into the mind frame where you were when you first went to prison, knowing that you had 
16 years to do. How did you come to grips with that? And how did that affect you mentally? I guess I would say the biggest part was that it was a, it was a, it was a tough road to hoe, as my, as my granny would say. Um, you know, I was a, I was a parent. Uh, I just became a parent uh, because my, yeah, my daughter, you know, she was about a year at the time. My son, he was still in the belly with his mom. And so carrying that, I was devastated in that I had just became exactly what I had hoped I wouldn't, which was absent. That kind of devastation, I used that as fuel to figure some things out. And so I was like, regardless of what, it, what it's going to take, I need to set a good example regardless of where I am. It is now 6.50 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news here on WORT. If there's one thing contributor Jennifer Fields is realizing is as she relearns to sew, it's how quickly everything adds up. In this episode of Radio Chipstone, artist and retired educator Joe Jensen shows Fields how to save a little cash. I see that you have ironed out your pattern and you ironed out your tracing paper. And why do we use tracing paper? Because that way, if you shape shift over the years, you can go back and cut out another pattern that fits your body, your current state of your body. And because these patterns are quite expensive, as you noticed, I mean, buying a pattern now, used to be you go buy a pattern, like, and I'm talking a long time ago, 1970s, buck 50, something like that. Now patterns are upwards of 15, sometimes $25, depending upon the complexity. So using tracing paper is just a way to save money. And also a lot of patterns today have different versions, long and short and so forth. This way you can do different versions of the pattern without destroying the, the pattern itself. You know, it's really interesting because we're in such a throwaway society. Like your phone is worthless in five years, disposable, everything. That the thought that within sewing is this built-in way to make things more economically feasible. I'm, I'm going to say that um, without knowing for certain, but um, maybe it's because women are behind a lot of this stuff. I mean, granted, you, you see all these uh, uh, designers and stuff on TV and a lot of them are men and so forth. But I think in the pattern making it, and people who sew at home are still women because you're making your own clothes, you're not buying it off a rack, you're looking to save some dough. And sewing's not a cheap thing. Like the, no, like it the, is the, not. And the last time I sewed anything from a pattern, there was no such thing as a seam jumper. You just lifted up the pressure foot and turned the wheel with your hand if you needed to go over a thick seam. Mm -hmm. You know, there's all these new things that have been developed that, in my mind, it's kind of like, is, this, is, is it really making it easier on me if I have to work more to afford the things that you now tell me I need to make this garment? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing to add to that. It's, it's, a, it's just an expensive proposition to start sewing these days because everything is so much more expensive and fabric is like many times more expensive than it was. And one thing's for sure, things don't go down in price. But the whole job of sewing something yourself, you have to be pretty dedicated to what you're going to do. It's very helpful to have skills. Otherwise, people are going to be saying, Did you make that? Yes. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I did. 
But you know what? So what? So what if somebody makes themselves a janky frock? If they're proud of it and they're going to be wearing it out and say, yeah, what do you want to say about it? There's just a lot of people who don't appreciate this stuff because they haven't done it or they don't think they can do it. So then their reaction to you doing it is like, oh my God, you're doing something like that. Isn't that so old fashioned? And, uh, wow. and it kind of like taking you down a notch or trying to. And I, I just give them double digits. You That's know? right. But, you know, it's like whatever. you make something then you do it. Yeah. Right. So and then try really hard to make it super good looking so <laughs> <laughs> so we've right. got the tracing paper we've got the patterns now we're making a very simple jumper with this you are going to cut two pieces of fabric that are the same but what you are going to do is modify one of the pieces for the front neckline after you have it cut out and this particular pattern is, is uh, pretty simple to cut out because you place it... All right, so you have your fabric on the table, and your fabric is folded in half the long way. And what you do is you place your pattern with one edge of it on the fold, which is going to be the center point to your front and the center point to the back, which means this is going to be a breeze to cut out. So, um, and the other piece of the pattern is a pocket. Okay, so if you're going to do one pocket or two pockets, depends on how many pockets you're putting on here. It says to cut out two there, and I'm assuming you will be doing that as well. I might cut out eight because I don't follow Just, rules. Yeah, you could make all different kinds of them for all different shapes of things that you carry on your person. Okay, so what you have here is a very um, sturdy piece of tracing paper. It's some kind of um, fused fabric, which means it's not going to tear up, which is good because regular old tissue paper, if you've ever made one of these patterns before, um, is kind of like a low-rent cousin to the stuff people jam in gift bags. I've, it, to me, it always feels like even thinner than onion skin, that outer layer, that skin of an onion you peel yeah, off, yeah. it's even thinner than that. Yeah, it, it is very, very cruddy stuff. That's why they've gone to doing these kind of patterns on like a heavier gauge paper, and then you use your own tracing paper to, to uh, mark your pattern over it. All right, so now we've picked out the size. Mm -hmm. We know what's up. Let's whip out this tracing paper. Okay. Okay, so what I would do, see, the fold line is always perfectly straight, and the fold line, in general, follows what's no, known as the grain of the fabric, if you're talking about uh, a woven fabric. Okay, so um, what I'm going to do to make this simple is to place the edge of this piece of um, tracing paper right on that fold line because it's absolutely straight. See? And then what you need to do is make sure that you have some weights or something on the tracing paper so that it doesn't shift around while you are tracing your size onto this paper. Well, here's the thing. I've never heard of using weights on anything. 20 years ago when I was actually doing you, active sewing. You can go in the kitchen, get some cups and put it on top of here, plates or whatever. Basically, you just need to hold the thing down so it doesn't shift around. 
How about those stones up there? There's some stones up there. Oh, that'll work. You could, and that's just it. I mean, you can be creative with this stuff. You can put stones on here. You can make it all Susie natural. How about an old? How you know what else I have? How about some old iPhones? I keep my old iPhones well, and I use iPhones them. Old iPhones are perfect because they're rectangular. Look at that. You put that right up there where the shoulder is. Put this one along this side like that. Next step I'm thinking is to trace this out with a pen or a pencil and then go from there. Yeah, and don't use don't use uh, markers because markers bleed, and um, it could also obscure the pattern lines beneath these. And you'll notice when you buy a pattern these days, if it, because we talked about this before, in that patterns come in several different sizes. The marks on the pattern are of variations of like dotted and dashed lines or more uh, thicker and thinner solid lines. And they're kind of wackadoodle, you know, and if your size is kind of in the in-between of these things, it can be really hard to find your lines. So, you know, better to use like um, uh, maybe a ballpoint pen or something like that. All right, so yours is the double... Double dash. dash. Okay, so what you do is just very carefully go around following that double dash. For WORT, I'm Jennifer Fields. And that's a wrap for WORT's live local news at 6. Your reporter tonight was Andy Barrow, Kristen Billings, and Emily Singer. Special thanks to featured contributors D Star, Jennifer Fields, and Tony Castaneda. Dylan Brogan engineered the show. Nick Wiggyhall produced this newscast. And Ms. Shali Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slate. And I'm your host, Allison Markowski. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you find your podcasts. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Have a great night. WRT Massive.